welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 52 of the Madden America podcast. And today we continue our series of interviews focused on the global mental health movement and reaction to the recent global mental health summit held in the UK. This podcast series is led by our Madden America research news team, and today's interview is hosted by Zenobia Morrill. Hi everyone, I'm Zenobia Morrill from Madden America. So glad to have you all joining us today as we have the great pleasure of hearing from Dr. China Mills. Before I introduce her, I'd like to quickly recap what we've been covering in our recent podcast series on the global mental health movement, just to provide some context for this interview. On October 9th and 10th, 2018, World Mental Health Day, the UK government hosted a global mental health ministerial summit with the intention of laying out a course of action to implement global mental health policies. In the same week, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development published a report outlining a proposal for scaling up mental health care globally. In response, a coalition of mental health activists and service users have organized an open letter detailing their concerns with the summit and report. This response has attracted the support of policymakers, psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers. So in previous episodes, we were joined by Dr. Melissa Raven, as well as mental health activists Jomil Breckenridge and Dr. Bhargavi Devar. Be sure and give those a listen as well. Today, we're thrilled to have Dr. China Mills joining us. She recently attended the UK summit, and we hope to hear more from her about that. And she took part in organizing the open letter response to the Lancet's proposal. China Mills is a lecturer in the School of Education, University of Sheffield, UK. Her research develops the framework of psychopolitics to examine the way mental health gets framed as a global health priority. In 2014, she published the book Decolonizing Global Mental Health, a fascinating book for anyone interested in the topics we're discussing today. And she has since published widely on a range of topics, including the inclusion of mental health in the sustainable development goals, the quantification of mental health and its construction as a technological problem, welfare reform, austerity, and suicide, and the intersections of psychology, security, and curriculum. China is principal investigator on two British Academy-funded projects researching the social life of algorithmic diagnosis and psi technologies. China is a member of the editorial collective for Asylum Magazine and for the journal Critical Social Policy, and she is a fellow of Sheffield Institute for International Development. So once more, we're honored to have you here with us, sharing your perspectives at such a critical time as people come together to respond to this movement. Welcome, China. Hi, Genevieve. Thank you so much for having me. And just to say, I'm completely honoured to be here. And thanks so much for inviting me. (laughs) Yes, we're so glad to have you. To get us started, could you tell us a bit more about the background of your work? Uh, In other words, how did you get involved and what's brought you here to this point in which you're doing intensive work and analysis of the global mental health movement? Sure. So I suppose there are lots of ways to tell the story of how Um, I came to work around global mental health. I could start, I guess, with my PhD, which involved researching the ways that mental health work and and interventions is done by user and survivor groups and non-governmental organisations, NGOs in India. And I think it it was an event in Calcutta in 2010 when I first heard about global mental health. Um, And at first I was really excited because it seemed to me like a combination of international development and mental health, Mm. uh, which I found sort of really interesting and kind of innovative at the time. 
But then I guess the more I came to learn about global mental health, particularly through colleagues and friends in India, such as Bhargavi Deva and the wonderful Bapu Trust um, that she founded, my excitement kind of became a bit tempered, I guess, and I became a little bit concerned with what, some of what I was learning about global mental health. And that concern has continued to grow over the years as I've continued to learn more about it. And one of the reasons for that concern means beginning that story much earlier, I guess, than my PhD, Mm -hmm. um, because I grew up alongside and shared my life with close family and friends who um, had different mental health diagnoses, and particularly who heard voices and who had schizophrenia diagnoses. And at the time, I didn't know any different than a medical model, right? So my family fought for access to mental health services, um, just as people continue to have to fight in the UK um, for even basic services that are pretty bad, to be honest, but people are often fighting just to keep those or just have access to those. And so it was only much later that I came across the Hearing Voices Network uh, when it used to be based in Manchester and when I was first in Manchester as a psychology undergrad. And I met just a whole range of folks at the Hearing Voices Network, Mm -hmm. people who identified as mad, um, but in a way that my family members had never known was a possibility, I guess. Mm -hmm. We'd never kind of seen that before. And I learned about really different ways to understand experiences like hearing voices um, that weren't necessarily medicalized. And that sought to understand the meaning of those experiences, both in terms of personal, but also kind of more structural or or political terms. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose all those experiences made me think, you know, wait there, shouldn't we be a bit cautious about exporting the models of mental health care that we have in places like the UK or the US or the sort of global north more broadly? Shouldn't shouldn't we be careful about exporting them from those countries to what are known as low and middle income countries or global south countries? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I so then I published my book, um, which I've had lots of wonderful feedback about, but I also think I've had some well-deserved critique. Um, And so as I'm going to be critical about other people here, I should also be critical about myself, so I'll do it early on. Um, And the main piece, I think, that deserves critique um, is around the title of the book, which I think I shouldn't have called it Decolonising Global Mental Health, because I think from talking to a range of folks, both in sort of post-colonies, but also current settler colonies, Mm -hmm. um, like Canada and the US, I've come to realise or think that it's not possible to decolonise mental health, and particularly Mm -hmm. perhaps not global mental health, um, in terms of thinking about whether or not it's possible ever to decolonise colonial systems, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I think the models that we currently have and that are currently dominant for mental health are too closely linked to colonialism and to colonial ways of thinking. So processes like categorisation and creating of hierarchies for any sort of meaningful decolonisation to take place in a way. So I guess I think we need new systems, but I also think that we can learn from existing ones that are not, you know, that aren't colonial. And, and Bhargavi Davar in the recent podcast talks about this in relation to working in countries that haven't experienced colonisation, for example, uh-huh. or have experienced different kinds of colonisation, say, or haven't experienced British uh, colonisation. And it's totally not like these places are somehow pure and there's some pretty awful stuff that happens in them for people um, who are distressed or who are psychosocially disabled. Um, But they might also, I think, have different ways of understanding or conceptualising distress that are not about necessarily professionals in the way that we in the UK might see it or about Mm -hmm. categorising people in certain ways. 
the very things that modernity and colonialism have been built on and sort of have enabled. Mm -hmm. So I think we can learn a lot from those systems. And that's why work um, like Bargavis with transforming communities of inclusion, I think is the the TCI Asia, I think is so important. Mm -hmm. And so so since doing that, since the book and first kind of coming across global mental health, I've continued to work in that area. Um, I guess the main thread of what I'm looking at is the way that um, the kinds of strategies that have been used to construct mental health and make mental health visible, if you like, as being a public health or um, an international development issue. And metrics, which I'm sure we will talk about shortly, have been really, really central to that. The burden of disease stuff, mm. also kind of prevalence rates and stuff. And it, this that kind of campaign within um, from global mental health has been hugely successful because we've seen mental health be included on the UN Sustainable Development Goals from 2015. Um, I do think mental health has taken a lot more kind of seriously and, and given more funding in certain ways uh, as a kind of global health priority, I guess. But I suppose what I continue to be interested in is you know, what ways of understanding are enabled by that kind of framing of mental health as a burden mm-hmm. or as um, as just like a physical illness, etc. And what's made invisible or harder to see through using those kinds of framings. And your response strikes me as such a rich and sort of nuanced way of approaching something that this global mental health movement often presents as a universal problem with potentially a universal solution to that, something that we can just apply to everyone. And I think the two major pieces as you expressed them were this idea that that might perpetuate a medical model sort of way of understanding um, distress across people and also coloniality and trying to figure out how to tease apart helping people who might be experiencing distress and suffering and want that help from this idea of a one-size-fits-all treatment is is quite difficult to do. Given your work in this area, what were your reactions to the recent Lancet report and the summit? I was actually just reading your piece about the summit published on the Mad in Asia website, and we'd love to hear more about your reactions to, to both of those things. Okay, sure. So I'll talk a little bit about both. And I think it's important that, you know, the summit was the place that the Lancet Commission report was launched. Um, but there are two, the summit and the report are different things in certain ways. And they have shared issues and problems, but also others that might be a problem just for each one, I suppose. And so I'll start with the summit. And so to give you some context, the event took place in London, so just over the river from Westminster. And there was loads and loads of people there. It's a very shiny kind of event. Um, A lot of conservative government ministers. You know, in the UK at the moment, most meetings about mental health, you would be lucky to get biscuits. But at this event, the food was incredible. The evening reception involved being transported by boat to the Tate Gallery. Um, So it's very fancy. And in some ways, I think people were pleased to see that, you know, it was like a sign that mental health was being taken seriously in some ways. And and that kind of fanciness um, Mm. was proof of that, perhaps. But there was also something, I think, pretty jarring about that, perhaps especially from someone who's either from the UK or has lived here for, for quite a few years. And I think some of that was that it was difficult to listen to um, conservative government ministers who've been involved in the enormous cuts to social welfare since the 2008 recession that we've, that we've seen in the UK, including, you know, really punitive um, reforms around welfare that have disproportionately 
targeted, really, disabled people who claim welfare, including people with psychosocial disability, obviously, and have really led to the impoverishment, um, further impoverishment of those people and had an enormous detrimental effect on mental health, if we want, you know, these Mm -hmm. kinds of punitive cuts and sanctions. So it was difficult to listen to them talking about mental health at this shiny event, Mm -hmm. when that's what the reality has been since 2008. And it wasn't great before then either, but it has been particularly marked in terms of welfare reform since then. And I think lots of us felt that it was quite arrogant on the part of the UK government to position themselves as sort of world leaders in mental health, mm-hmm. which is very much the way that the summit was was worded. Um, when in 2016, you know, the UN found that the government, the UK government's austerity policies had enacted what they said were grave or systematic violations of the rights of persons with disabilities. And so punitive measures that I was talking about, things like sanctions and welfare conditionality, have been found, I'm sure you know, by a whole load of research um, as as being um, a contributory factor to, you know, really detrimentally impacting on people's mental health, but also as a factor contributing to thousands of additional suicides that we've seen in the UK. Um, And a lot of the reason that we know about that has been through just tireless and amazing campaigning from disabled people's groups in the UK, like Disabled People Against Cuts and Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the information was found out through freedom of information requests from people like John Pring at the Disability News Service. So when at the summit then it was announced that the UK now is going to have a minister um, for suicide, despite there being still no acknowledgements from the government about how their welfare policies are killing people, mm-hmm. I think many of us felt a real sense of, of despair around that. The irony of that is is sort of like something from a British comedy, right? Except yeah. for we're talking about something that's just you know people are killing themselves because their lives have been made unbearable through these kinds of policies Mm -hmm. and I think it was also jarring to be at the event when there's just some brilliant UK user and survivor run organizations and groups such as the National Survivor User Network NSUN who are so cash strapped that they're pretty much near to closure and we've also seen Loads of groups um, for people of colour with mental health issues in the UK have had to close down. And so seeing that with the the amount of money that must have been put into organising the summit was a kind of strange experience, I guess. Sorry, I wanted to jump in and just ask a little bit about this because I know you've spoken or done some work on the psychiatrization of poverty and that seems so relevant to this summit and the way that it was organized and your um, reactions to it. You've said before that while perhaps well-intentioned efforts to scale up, so to speak, take the complexities of distress in the context of poverty and have replaced them with a focus on medication compliance, you know, citing the work of Jane and Jada. And could you elaborate on this? Like how has the global movement resulted in a focus on drug interventions and kind of obscured this, this poverty context? So in current, in in some of the current research that I've been doing has involved doing um, a lot of interviews with um, some of the kind of key movers and shakers if you like the key figures Mm -hmm. within the movement for global mental health and I think that well I know that a lot of the work that people do is super well-intentioned and I think people worked really hard on this Lancet commission and I think it's really important to acknowledge that and some of these people I feel are friends in certain ways and so it's important for this you know, I don't want this critique to seem like an attack in a way. I think it's quite important for us to have be able to have these conversations with some of the people that are, are leading this sort of movement. And I think the Lancet report, you know, does 
make a move towards talking about like social determinants, if you like, of health, mm. um, perhaps more than a lot of the previous global mental health uh, literature and, and work has. Well, and I should say, I think actually a lot of the beginning, the people that were involved in global mental health in the early days were very keen to avoid having pharmaceutical company funding actually around a lot mm. of their initiatives because I think they were super aware of the problems with that and also the critique that they would get if they if they did do that. So yes, I think pharmaceutical in- companies are involved in different kinds of ways in this, but they haven't, I don't think, directly overtly funded a lot of the sort of main global mental health um, campaigns. Though they do, for example, fund... Um, a number of scholarships on like the MSc and global mental health, for example, that happens at London School of Hygiene and, and King's. Mm. Um, so there are ways that they're involved in this, but not kind of overtly in, in certain senses, I guess. I think the one of the main ways that, that global mental health more broadly, and including this new Lancet report, risks creating markets if you like for pharmaceuticals Mm. even if they're not intending to do that and even if people know that there's problems with that is firstly the language used in terms of framing what we might just think of as distress at the living conditions that people are experiencing as being things called mental disorders or often called like neuropsychiatric disorders or you know that there's an immediate um location then of those as as being individual disorders um, that should be intervened on at an individual level. That of course can lead to pharmaceuticals or it can lead to forms of of therapy that are more sort of individualized but it still doesn't do much to kind of change people's structural conditions. You know even in a lot of the social determinants of poverty work there's a slight slippage I think that happens where the kind of social bit is seen as, as being people themselves and their perhaps their interpersonal relationships they're like with their families Uh rather than like the bigger political and economic determinants that shape social determinants because families Mm -hmm. aren't in a vacuum are they I mean they're shaped by these much bigger issues that are happening and so a tendency I think to focus interventions on poor people rather Mm -hmm. than changing the conditions that make poverty possible partly because psychopharmaceuticals are just always going to be the easiest cheapest thing to sort of Mm. scale up access to and scaling up is very much kind of language of of global mental health and some of its aims you know that's that's always going to be the easier option I guess whereas trying to scale up other kinds of psychosocial interventions or forms of therapy or whatever it is uh, it's obviously much more difficult and takes a lot more Mm -hmm. time and is a lot more expensive um, so even though some of these programs I think are quite well intentioned I do worry that they kind of grow the market for those drugs in certain ways right yeah rather than sort of addressing the structural components that may be causing that distress sure and I should say that this report had been kind of officially and unofficially shared amongst loads of people mm-hmm. who identify as users and survivors and, and others um, for weeks prior to its launch. I got lots of emails saying, don't tell anyone I sent you this, but look at this report. <laughs> so that, I think that's really interesting. It kind of had this social life before it was sort of officially uh, officially launched. Uh-huh. And I've, yeah, I mean, some of my kind of concerns or critique around this that I might talk about a little bit more now um, are really massively informed by conversations that I've had with with lots of other people including a lot of people who are users and survivors um Mm. and so I suppose I'm informed by some of those conversations even if I don't fully represent them 
Um, so conversations with people like Jayshri Kalatil and Akriti Mehta, Alison Faulkner, Akiko Hart. So, yeah, OK, so the launch happened at the summit of this report. And, and Vikram Patel, who's one of the lead authors of the report and a sort of yeah big figure within global mental health, he made clear when he launched the commission report at the summit, he said there's no way that a single report by 28 people can include every different perspective. And he so there was 28 different commissioners or co-authors, if you like, on the report. And he said that he um, he and they aimed for the report to kind of recognise differences in points of view. And he wanted to encourage criticality. Um, and I think, you know, of course, any 28, he's right, 28 people's perspectives can never represent the, the kind of multitude of different perspectives there are around mental health. And I really like that that criticality is being created and that kind of conversation is being open so I thought that was really really welcome and there was you know there's been loads of criticality and a kind of critical response around the summit and around the Lancet Commission report like these podcasts that Madden America are doing Mm -hmm. and the letter from the National Survivor User Network a different letter from Shaping Our Lives you know all these kinds of open letters where users survivors professionals academics um, were bringing up some of the the, the main problems or issues they had with these um with the report as well as the summit itself but I guess while I really appreciate um the commissioners sort of saying this opens a conversation I think it what would have been much more desirable would have been to have had some of those different perspectives and perhaps mm. especially um the experiences and the research of users and survivors um, actually engaged within the writing of the of the report itself Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know we might talk about that in a minute um but that to me seemed like a really kind of glaring omission I guess from the report and I suppose one of the things that I found kind of most frustrating about the Lancet Commission report is the way that it it positions itself as kind of taking this radical step in kind of reframing mental health mm-hmm. and some of the ways that it seeks to reframe it is through including evidence on social determinants like we just mentioned talks about promoting a partnership model um, and does talk about including people that, that the report uh, frames as having lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it really uses the words users or, sub- I don't think it definitely doesn't use the word survivor, I don't think. But um, yeah, so people with lived experiences. And in some ways, I think, you know, yes, I get that those things, this partnership model, social determinants might be quite radical and new for the people that wrote the report and for a whole load of professionals, right, and people involved in global mental health. And I really welcome the issues that are being discussed. But I do think it would have been nice if they could have acknowledged that actually that work in reframing mental health is not new for a whole load of other people, for a lot of users and survivors Mm -hmm. globally, lots of social scientists, even for quite a lot of professionals. And so it's a tough one because part of me is like, yes, I want to congratulate the commission for sort of recognising the need to reframe mental health and take seriously social determinants. Mm. And then another part of me is like, well, couldn't you just be a little bit humble for a second and acknowledge that there are some folks, especially users and survivors, but others as well, that have been doing this kind of reframing work and calling for reframing, but also doing the reframing in practice um, mm-hmm. for paradigm changes, et cetera. Um, for a really long time and perhaps they could have involved some of those folks in the actual writing of the report I guess and I think that links to another thing then that's missing from the report which is the 
omission both of quite well-established critiques from um, users, survivors, professionals, academics from low and middle income countries, of which there has been loads of critiques. I mean, thinking even about the published work of Bhargavi Dava from the Baku Trust, there's some really mm-hmm. powerful scholarly work there around um, some of the problems as well as the coloniality right, of, of global mental health, particularly in India, but elsewhere as well, as well as the fact that um, the report itself has had very little engagement with um, users and survivors. Mm. So I think one, just one um, of the commissioners, one of the co-authors out of 28 is identified as a user of mental health services mm-hmm. or a person with lived experience. But I know from the authors that there was no consultation process around the report. Um, and there's also very little, as far as I know, but I'm, I could be wrong, citations that refer to user-survivor research within the report. I think there's a few, but there's not many. Mm. And I think it's just problematic because the report itself calls for a partnership model and it, it it says, which I think is great, that it's important to give space for the voices of people that they say are people with lived experience or users, survivors, say. Mm. But I just kind of think, OK, but if you think those things are so important, which is great that you do, I wish you could have actually applied those principles to the, the production of the actual report. I think that would have been a really truly more radical thing to have, have done. Mm-hmm. Um, though there are folks that have been doing that kind of co-production work for quite a long time. So again, I think this could have been something learned there from that work. And I think, I mean, this critique does not only apply to these commissioners or to global mental health. I think, you know, the full to fully involve users and survivors means actually a really big epistemological shift, a really big shift in the way that knowledge is produced within global mental health um, and social science, you know, more broadly. Um, There's a whole bunch of critical folks who don't do this too. So this is not just a critique for the global mental health people because it isn't just about consultation. It's about kind of radical shifts in what we think distress is. It's about um, radical challenges to what counts as evidence and who gets Mm -hmm. to decide that. And it's about recognising users and survivors as knowledge producers. Thinking about it, you know, one of the reasons for the omission of that kind of work, because I do think that some of the authors recognise the importance of that, but it's kind of not in the report, might be that global mental health makes such a strong claim and kind of big deal about going for being evidence-based and for being located within evidence-based medicine. It's kind of this like repetitive insistence that global mental health is evidence-based. And I mean, that's completely understandable. It it makes a political message, doesn't it? It's like, Mm -hmm. look, here's the evidence. It's just as strong as it is for other health conditions. So now you have to take mental health as seriously as you take physical health conditions, which I think is a really strong message. But of course, what evidence-based medicine obscures and kind of misses is often other kinds of more qualitative research or research which might have been carried out by users and survivors or more sort of experiential knowledge, the stuff that, you know, you can't do systematic reviews and randomised controlled trials of, but might still work for people. You know, the stuff that we know works, but we can never prove it in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I also think often what we miss in that is that the political, social and economic determinants of distress are often quite hard to prove in an evidence-based framework so perhaps that's one of the things that kind of needs rethinking here is is what are we going to say counts as evidence and can there be can we think that there might be multiple forms of evidence within mental health which is something Diana Rose actually talks quite a lot about and I think could could be really useful way of of thinking or rethinking global mental health 
That's such an important point, what counts as evidence. And as you talk about this radical epistemological kind of shift that might need to happen, one question on my mind is, how might you envision a different mental health movement, one that takes these considerations of power or context and the voices of those that are most affected? Do you see a counter movement happening like this now already? Or is there something that needs to be done to to do this? I think there are counter movements happening, let's say. So I think, yeah, okay, maybe two things. I think there are counter movements. I think there is critique around this and there's resistance to it, which is super important. But I also think there are just other things happening which don't frame themselves as being resistance to global mental health. Right. And I think what's powerful about those, perhaps, and I think Transforming Communities for Inclusion, TCI Asia, you know, Bapu Trust in India, Bhagavi Davar's work, mm-hmm. um, some user survivor groups within the UK. What's interesting about just doing something different that isn't being positioned as resistance is that you're not kind of confined by the like master way of thinking about it, if you think. So, you know, they're not resisting anything as such. They're just doing something a different kind of way. So I think there's actually loads to learn from that, those kinds of movements. I guess some of some of the critique around global mental health has been about the kind of the global piece, the kind of universal piece, mm-hmm. you know. And and people like um Shaman Fernando in the UK who have said, you know, it isn't about global mental health, isn't it about sort of local political work or recovery, I think he says. And people like Derek Summerfield, another critic mm-hmm. of global mental health, talks about the global mental health as an oxymoron sort of mm-hmm. kind of framing. So I think possibly if there's going to be counter movements or just different movements, they will not be global doesn't right. mean that there can't be ways for those movements to speak to each other because I think that's incredibly important uh-huh. but I don't think there necessarily has to be one single sort of monolithic movement that competes with right. what we see as being the kind of monolithic movement of global mental health and actually there's there are a lot of movements even within global mental health that still do quite interesting innovative stuff under that framework so yeah I think there's already things happening and um there wouldn't be a single movement in that sense. And actually that we could just, the, the linking up with um, the sort of dis- disability movement, you know, disabled people's groups much more broadly and just with work to, you know, anti-poverty work and, and political kind of work is, is just vitally important around this. So it doesn't have to always be framed around mental health. And, and Bhargavi uh, Davar does that brilliantly you know she has always sort of said why are we framing this in in terms of yeah. health in a way you know isn't this an issue around justice or um mm-hmm. this be something around kind of equality or just around anti-poverty or, and I think that that's a really important point so linking with those kinds of movements I think would be vital. Yeah I think back on that question and even that question framed around counter movements to global mental health and your point is well there is local knowledge and there has been local knowledge about these things that don't position themselves under those terms or under those categories that are really part of that discourse and have existed separate from that and perhaps aren't acknowledged as part of this evidence-based idea or as a scientific sort of approach um, unfortunately yeah. And so they've occurred sort of as isolated from from one another. And in some contexts, they've occurred locally for, for local problems and don't apply on this kind of global level. So wouldn't be countering a global movement in that in that way. Uh, 
it makes me think more too about how for some people that connection with global mental health and the and the colonial discourse don't seem to to connect like they might say well this is evidence based and this is research that we know so how would this relate to colonial power structures you know what does that that mean absolutely yeah and i think actually um I think one of the big criticisms around global mental health has centred on this kind of idea around the globalisation of of current diagnoses. Mm -hmm. You know, the West, if you like, is globalising diagnoses, diagnostic categories like depression or ADHD, etc. And how useful are they in countries of the global South? Something like that kind of critique. But I think actually... That I mean, I think that's massively important. I think I probably made that point before, so I shouldn't rubbish that. But I also think there's something kind of deeper here, thinking about coloniality and actually doing, um, you know, some of a, a brilliant PhD student who I work with at the moment, Lindsay Miller, who makes me kind of think more around some of these things. And they talk about, um, or together we've been looking at the kind of already or always globalness, if you like, of, of current diagnostic categories. And so while there is this globalisation, I think that some of the diagnostic categories that we currently know, so that are kind of dominant, I suppose, in the global north, they've always been to some extent global. So they've been formed through research, for example, in former colonies Mm -hmm. um, and have long sought, you know, there's long been this effort um, to standardise the diagnoses of mental health issues in order to be able to compare prevalence rates internationally, so between different countries. I mean, this has long been a colonial concern as well, right? So when I'm thinking about British colonialism in India, in 1871, I think there were prevalence surveys that compared the rate of what would then have been called insanity between England and Wales, so the the, the colonial the, the colonizers. Um, with India, who were colonised. Mm-hmm. And the findings at that time in, in those prevalence surveys was that India had one-eighth the amount of insanity than did England and Wales, because at the time, insanity was imagined to be something that only... It was an outcome of civilization, if you mm-hmm. like. And, of course, colonised peoples weren't constructed as being civilised in the same way that people... Um, the Brits thought of themselves, let's say. So I think this, you know, this kind of idea of um, wanting to compare these rates and these prevalence rates mm-hmm. looks different now, but has long been a concern. You know, when we look historically, we can really see the interesting sort of uses and political uses of this. Right. Um, as well as, you know, the amazing work that's been done by, I suppose, historians of um, of colonial psychiatry looking at... Um, the way that any sorts of resistance to colonialism, for example, in British East Africa, um, were framed as being mental illness. You know, so Mm -hmm. the kind of imagining that um, either resistance to colonial rule or claims that one day what was then called British East Africa would be um, free of white colonisers was imagined like those are symptoms of, of mental health problems. So that kind of colonial and political use and I think it's it's really easy to think, okay, but that was in the past and we all know that that's ridiculous now and we can kind of laugh at it. But I think we have to think about the the, the ways that that sort of logic continues somehow or reverberates or is still is still sort of present, but in a hidden way, maybe in the in the kind of current way that we understand mental health and current um, diagnostic practices. 
And I think a really good example of that, that, that continued logical reverberation is to think about the move from, or not move, but but the move in terms of calculating prevalence to also thinking about calculating mental health problems as a burden. Mm. Okay, and so both in terms of um, disease burden, as in burden of the burden, global burden of disease type work, um, as well as the sort of way that mental health problems are framed as being an economic burden. And those two things, so disease burden and economic burden, have been absolutely like central um, framings or strategies, if you like, to try to get mental health taken more seriously globally. So they've been key strategies used by the movement for global mental health. Mm-hmm. And they were constantly repeated at the summit that I just went to. They're, mm-hmm. they're in the uh, Lancet Commission report. And in some ways, they've been super successful because they've, like we talked about, you know, mental health is now on the sustainable development goals, etc. So they definitely do a sort of political work, I think. Um, but obviously, they also perhaps come at certain risks that I guess we should be concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so... In terms of the burden of disease metrics, and so they're calculated for multiple different health conditions, and it's not only mental health. Um, and they use the disability adjusted life year, right, to calculate what they see as years of life lost to um, a disability. And often that means, in the sense that the person isn't seen as being able to engage in paid work, which is considered to be the only form of productive work, I guess, in this kind of discourse. And also then years of life that are, um, that are lost to death. And so you get, alongside that, you get calculations about the cost of mental disorder, as it is usually called in this sort of discourse, say by the WHO, to the economy. And often that's compared between different countries or it might be looked at internationally. And I think some of the you know, yes, I can totally see this This has a kind of political function. I think it's very successful at having that. Mm. And in some ways, there is certainly in the UK a lot more funding now to do international mental health work than there has ever been. And I think that more governments around the world are sort of taking a certain version of mental health kind of more seriously. I think more resources to some extent are being um, uh, assigned, if you like, to, to doing mental health work. So I think Yes, the burden of disease stuff has that function. But I also think it has some really worrying other effects that we should think about. And some of those um, are, for example, that it, that kind of framing assumes that mental health problems or distress is inherently disabling itself. Mm-hmm. And so if we and it, and it may be true that sometimes distress is like an impairment, say, if we're going to mm-hmm. use more of a social model kind of function. Um, but of course, it that kind of framing also diverts attention from the way that many treatments or so-called treatments for mental health problems impair and disable people. You know, they can um, the effects of some of the drugs as well as other forms of treatment can impair people. They can lead to impairments. Um, the burden framework also ties disability and, and people's value in a way to being about their ability to engage in paid work. Mm-hmm. Um which doesn't allow us to think, well, there might be other ways of valuing human life, right, that aren't only about Mm. sort of productivity and and getting paid to work. And also, I think, worryingly, it completely diverts attention from the fact that work is probably a key reason for a hell of a lot of people's distress. Mm. You know, whether that be lack of work or insecure working conditions or just kind of excessive demands for productivity. It looks different in different places, but it definitely um, plays a, a massive part. And I think also 
um, there's a risk then. And, and this is a sort of slippage that speaks to this historical piece that we were just talking about in a way. Mm-hmm. But if we frame mental health problems or mental disorder or, you know, as being a burden, then we risk this kind of slippage into framing people who experience distress or people with psychosocial disabilities as themselves being a burden. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what the global the movement for global mental health is trying to do. I think they wouldn't, you know, they would see that that's really problematic. But my concern, I suppose, is in if we're mobilising and using this sort of burden framework, are we at risk of, of this being the kind of outcome of that, I suppose, no matter how good intentions we might be using the burden stuff. And I think that's important because, um, well, thinking about in the UK now, I talked earlier about, about UK welfare reform, and I've done a little bit of um work looking at some of the family accounts as well as some people who have died by suicides accounts of of why their life was sort of becoming um kind of unlivable I suppose and mm-hmm. um, linked to welfare reform and a lot of what people talk about is how much people were were afraid of becoming a burden so a burden on their families or a mm-hmm. burden on the state because their benefits their welfare um was being cut or was being um cut back and their fear of being a burden isn't just about a kind of perceived in individual feeling of being a burden. It has just been like crafted by the UK government and various media outlets in this um, construction of people who claim welfare as instead of being entitled to that welfare because, say, of, of, of being disabled, um, instead of them being, you know, kind of scroungers is often the word that's used in the UK. So. Um, exactly like a burden scrounging on on the state and that not being seen as a sort of viable um, way to live in a sense so that's what makes me concerned about the burden because Mm -hmm. that's the the sort of psychological impact of that of making some people feel like um, they're a burden you know I I mentioned in the blog that piece that I was invited to write for, for Mad in Asia but thinking historically then around this um, the the Lancet Commission report itself talks about, I think it's on page 18, talks about Nazi Germany and Action T4, which was the use of the gas chambers for killing psychiatric patients and disabled people. And so I'm sure you know but they, that they were used, um, disabled people and, and people in asylums or psychiatric patients were targeted, you know, prior to the kind of um, larger use of the gas chambers um, with Jewish people. And I think even though the report mentions that, what the report doesn't think about or mention is the fact that actually one of the big justifications for the arguments is to try to eradicate disabled people and what would then have been psychiatric patients was because those groups were framed as being a burden. They were seen as being a cost to the state um, that was seen as kind of being untenable. And so it was actually seen as like a positive economic strategy to, to get rid of certain groups I, I by no means think that I'm not saying that's the kind of real intention behind the current framing of mental health as a burden I don't think it is in any way but I think what we have to be really careful of here is how history isn't only in the past and is mm-hmm. sort of like we were saying still threaded through certain kind of logics in the way that we're thinking about mental health mm-hmm. and so that but the, the burden piece I think is a major concern around um yeah, in the framing of mental health in this way, thinking about those um, kinds of histories, eugenic histories and colonial histories. 
Yeah, I, I think that was incredibly well said, really, the way that this burden framework has a history to it that we lose sight of as we speak about it in modern day statistics and modern day metrics of the cost of global mental health, but really how that burden positions people to think of their own distress or think of other people and and their distress. Uh, I also wanted to get to some of your more recent research that's examined digital technologies aimed at behavior change and well-being, specifically technologies for scaling up and task sharing. The Lancet proposal to scale up treatment through digital interventions uh, speaks to this quite a lot in its report to implement global mental health. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on this. I'm doing yeah, some work around behaviour change and the way that technology is being used as a kind of vehicle for the behaviour change agenda more broadly. And I suppose that probably the most relevant um, piece for, for this is that I'm doing some work on the uh, World Health Organization's MHGAP programme. So that stands for the Mental Health Gap Action Programme. Um, and they have an intervention guide which is a tool to aid clinical decision making. Okay, so it's an it's an algorithm it's algorithmic diagnosis. And so very simply what that means is that there's a kind of flow chart of questions that um, a non-clinician necessarily, you know, it doesn't it often people who are framed as non-specialists, meaning non-specialists in mental health, um, follow this sort of flow chart of questions. And depending on if the person that they're interviewing says yes or no, it takes them to the relevant next question, etc. And that can be used to diagnose people. It's often used for training. Yeah, a whole variety of, of different kinds of uses and is now available as a smartphone app. OK, so technology here is starting to start to come in. So some of the work that I'm um, doing, um, and that's um, work that's with um, Kimberly Lacroix and, and Eva Hilberg, um, is looking at the sort of social life, I guess we're calling it, around MH Gap and these kinds of um, guidelines for clinical decision making, right? And by social life, I mean we're looking at how were they, how you know, how were they conceived of? How were these sorts of guidelines and tools produced? Um, who was involved in the making of them? How do different actors understand them? And then in what ways are they? being enacted in different kind of global contexts, but also is there resistance to them or is appropriation, et cetera. So that's kind of what we're looking at. And what I've mainly been doing is interviewing folks who made MH Gap. So some of the people that were part of the guideline development group, um, some folks from the WHO, et cetera. So uh, kind of, yeah, the, the sort of central people involved in the development of that, of those guidelines and the tool, which has been fascinating. And um, I'm still doing the interviews. So I can't do a whole summary of what, uh, uh-huh. what's coming out. Um, but I guess it's one of the things that's quite interesting is around a, a key, a key um, idea behind this, these guidelines and this tool is to sort of, um, it's seen as like the sort of main tool in the scaling up of mental health from global mental health um, to through task sharing. And so what I mean by that is through this redistribution of tasks that, say might in the UK be done by a psychiatrist, this idea that um, actually these a lot of these tasks could be done by uh, so-called kind of non-specialists, whether they be doctors or nurses or community health workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is very much based on a sort of central metric or statistic, if you like, that plays a massive part within global mental health, which is the idea of a treatment gap. And particularly um, a statistic that gets often repeated, which is, you know, how many psychiatrists are there per 100,000 of the population in different countries? Mm -hmm. 
And so the WHO often then say, well, 45% of the world live in a country where there's less than, you know, whatever number of psychiatrists per 100,000 people. Okay. And so here, this tool, these these guidelines, um, the MHGAP intervention guide, are seen as a way of, of redistributing those tasks. And what's interesting is, you know, I suppose because I come from a bit more of a critical perspective, I kind of think, oh, you know, oh no, this is like the psychiatrization through technology, you know, I get a little bit concerned about this. But actually, a lot of the people who were involved in the development of MHGAP see themselves as being uh, quite radically removed from kind of more traditional psychiatrists who and there, ha- and there has been resistance to MH gap from um, some psychiatrists who think that actually they should be the ones that have the expertise in diagnosis and that that kind of process shouldn't be um, redistributed to so-called non-specialists. So it's interesting, these different sorts of positionings. And, you know, sometimes I think it's easy to think psychiatry is all one thing. And of course, it absolutely isn't. And so there are a lot of disputes around this, even within psychiatry, which I find mm-hmm. quite interesting. And so, yeah, I guess I'm learning that the people that are involved in the development of MHGAP don't necessarily see it as a kind of any kind of catch-all solution. And some of them have concerns about it. I think one of the concerns that's coming up is probably one that we might all wonder about. And that is that um, despite uh, um, psychosocial interventions being sort of written into the algorithm, if you like, even more in the second version than in the first of the tool, just like we said before, because because drugs are always going to be the sort of easiest, cheapest thing in, in most contexts to be able to get hold of. Um, there's a concern perhaps from some people, not all, that um, that it might lead to that kind of pharmaceuticalization, I suppose, in some ways, just like many different programs might, even if that's not um, their intention. And so... Yeah, I suppose that's one of the main things that we're kind of finding in looking at MHGAP, as well as the ways that technology and metrics uh, kind of really reinforce each other and relate to each other in this sort of global mental health debate. Mm. So, you know, prevalence figures of, you know, this many people, look look how high these rates of mental health problems are, are often then used to position technology as being the kind of solution to that because it can extend the reach of right. um, psychiatry or or psychotherapy so and equally technology then plays a part in um calculating those prevalence figures Mm -hmm. sharing them on digital platforms etc yeah and this notion of accessibility that comes with the technology implications uh or interventions uh kind of ties into this other narrative that's prominently featured in the global mental health movement and the focus on reducing stigma uh, the argument is made that stigma poses a major barrier to those with mental distress in need of help and considerable energy and resources, including the Time to Change and the Heads Together campaign are focused on reducing stigma. What is your take on that? In some ways, I think that's great because I think that there are yeah. a lot of people that have been um, calling for that attention to be paid to stigma for a long time. Um, And I think at least that in part tries to sort of locate some of the problem, if you like, outside of individuals and actually look at the way that people might be um, disabled, if you like, by structural factors, including stigma, you know, how people are treated by other people and the ways that we kind of understand um, mental health. I think my concern around um, some of the way that stigma is currently talked about and just and it is talked about a lot now I guess you mm-hmm. know the summit 
um, event, you know, stigma came up a lot and time to change were very strong presence there. So, for example, within global mental health, often reducing stigma is kind of understood as we need to teach people to recognise mental illness, if you like. And it is it is that that people are being taught to recognise. So, you know, we need to realise that these behaviours are actually symptoms of something that we're going to call a mental illness. Um, it's about teaching people to recognise that and then not to necessarily treat people differently because of that. That's the kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of, yeah, it's about educating people about illness, I suppose. And I, I guess I'm a bit concerned about that when so many users and survivors for years have argued against that kind of narrative. Mm. And I think we can learn that there are, um, there might be, that that in itself may be a stigma, that, that may create new forms of stigma. And there has been interesting work that's pointed out that actually, you know, research that's that's shown that actually calling something a brain disorder can be even more stigmatizing than saying that something is because of something that's happened to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so whether that be a trauma or something to do with living conditions, because there's something about saying like brain disorder or neuropsychiatric disorder, which I think perhaps makes people think that people's brains are different from, you know, they're not human in some kind of way mm-hmm. that, other, that other people are presumed to be. Whereas mm-hmm. to say, well, this person perhaps is doing something a bit odd or is really unhappy, but that's because these things have happened to them or this has been their reality for a while. I think perhaps is more likely to result in in empathy rather than stigmatisation from people. But that kind of research seems to be being kind of ignored in this approach, which is like we need to teach people about mental illness as an an illness, as as a brain disorder. There's also something here about stigma being reduced to sort of talking more about stuff so you know if you just talk about your mental health issues and your distress more then somehow the problem of stigma is going to kind of go away this has been Mm -hmm. quite a strong narrative in the UK over the last few years Um, and I think that you know yes in some ways of course I think it's important to encourage people to talk but the problem is if there's anyone there that's actually going to listen and mm. if there are services there that are able to listen to people as well as other, it doesn't have to be services. And it also still detracts from much more kind of structural issues. It sort of right. it puts the onus um, on an individual to summon up the courage or whatever to talk to people about the distress that they're experiencing. Um, and then it's almost like, well, if they don't do that, then that's the problem they're the ones that can reduce stigma through talking about it rather than thinking about some of the structural issues which might actually uh, both lead to distress but also um contribute to stigma I guess Mm -hmm. you know and I think that's where thinking more about like forms of discrimination are important and you know discrimination is talked about in the Lancet Commission report it's not missing from there and I think Mm -hmm. that's great but there is something a little different between stigma and discrimination, which I think is really important um, differentiation to make. And also just coming back to thinking about this construction of, of, of mental disorder, as it's called by the WHO, as a burden, and that slippage to seeing people with psychosocial disability themselves as a burden. I would be worried that that is incredibly dehumanising and, and also potentially inc- incredibly stigmatising. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of language... Um, used alongside anti-stigma campaigns could be actually really problematic. 
Well, China, I want to thank you on behalf of our team at Madden America for your time today. I think that we're all increasingly becoming exposed to this conversation about global mental health and what it would mean to reduce stigma. And we're often seeing these things promoted quite uncritically. And so your perspectives that are looking at the deeper issues of really what knowledge is this based on? Who's been excluded from that knowledge? And how is it continuing to have implications for how we understand and really acknowledge distress and how it could potentially be harmful in doing that is something that we ought to be considering and bringing to light more. So is there anything else that we didn't touch on that's on your mind that you'd like to talk more about today? No, not really. Just more of these podcasts. And thank you so much for doing them and for your work and the Madden America's work and Hopefully we can start to make some of these international connections that do mental health a little differently, like you're talking about and response yeah. differently. <laughs> I hope so. And your support and your time is really meaningful. So thank you so much. Thank you. So I just wanted to thank Zenobia and Dr. Mills for taking the time to chat for the podcast. And if you'd like to know more about Dr. Mills' work, you can find links on the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. So thank you for listening today, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.